Hi, this is Mario Andretti, and you're listening to Everything F1. And it's lights out, and away we go! Welcome to the 101st episode and the final episode of the year for the Everything F1 podcast. And now I'm not understating this when I say we have saved the very best until last this year. My Ooh. name is James Tiller and alongside me today from the Everything F1 team, we've got Coops and Sean. Hiya Coops and Sean, how are you? I'm very good. Good, good, good. Doing well. And do not adjust your TV screens. Do not adjust your headphones if you're listening to us on our podcast. The voice and the pictures of Mario Andretti are certainly what you're going to be hearing over the course of the next podcast. So hi, Mario. Thank you very much for joining us on the show. My pleasure, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. You are very welcome. Before we head into the conversation with Mario, we are the Everything F1 team. You can find us on all our social platforms. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at the handle at JoinEF1. You can also find us every single day posting brand spanking new articles, breaking news from all around motorsport uh, on www.everythingf1.com. Please also make sure you hit the subscribe button to our podcast on your favorite podcast streaming service. And we hope you'll get lots of great interviews like we're having today with Mario Andretti. Okay, so Mario, you're one of only two drivers who have actually won races in F1, IndyCar, sports car and NASCAR. But what I want to know is where did the love and desire for motor racing come from? It started right at the very beginning of my life, if you will, when I just was old enough to to reason, if you will. And we, we were still living in Italy and the motor racing was very prominent. And especially, you know, in the 50s when Ferrari and Maserati were great protagonists in Formula One and, and we had home, homegrown heroes, you know, Alberto Scari and Dina winning and, of course, going against Banjo and Moss and all those great moments in Formula One. And then my brother and I just totally gravitated to the sport. I a, had a twin brother, Aldo, and then mm-hmm. we both shared the same desires, the same. We were fascinated the same way. And then that's it. And so from the very beginning, there was never a plan B. And <laughs> Pursuit was on. I had no idea where it was going to go, but the pursuit was on as a dream, at least at the time. Excellent. So when did you start driving then? Was it was it there in Italy or did you, did you wait till you went over stateside? Well, we left uh, Italy when I was 15. And, and so as far as driving, what type of driving you're talking about? Just driving, driving cars or driving race cars? Race cars, race cars, race, sorry, yeah. yeah. Race cars. That was at age 19, four years after we arrived in the United States. Mm-hmm. That's when that's when it all began for us. 
And then, so again, you know, we built our own car. We started building a race car, a stock car to, to race locally two years after we arrived at age 17 with four wow. other friends. You know, of course, we always had the geek, the one that knows everything. <laughs> uh, to guide us and then two years later we started driving on the local level in fact my career started at age 19 and officially i came out of the cockpit in 1994 at age 54 wow. and uh, my last very last professional race was in 2000 at 24 hours of le mans this is a, a crazy career i think can't be beaten i don't think what, what drew you to doing the stock cars first what was it about the stock cars that enticed you on? Was it just the, the simplicity of it or was it the race in itself? Well, I think it was just the opportunity and, and it was doable at the time, you know, that at the time was the least sophisticated, if you will. And so it was the most practical way to, to get started. My objective, however, right from the very beginning was always to get into single seaters as quickly as possible. And all of that began when actually I turned 21, which at that time it was legal. Was only was legal to only ra to race when you were 21. We actually were racing illegally, if you will. <laughs> but we had to, we fudged uh, we fudged our birth date on our license on our driver's license, and then uh, we got by. And <laughs> so, but two years later, you know, when I, I got into midget midget cars. And I went three-quarter midget, full-size midgets. And the objective was to try to get into the top level here in America, the Indy cars. Always in the back of my mind, Formula One, however, you know, just, but I had to <laughs> establish myself, you know, here. And, and everything was, went, believe it or not, pretty much as you would hope, as designed, as we thought we designed it. But at least things were just happening the right way. Mm -hmm. Progressing along, and, and by the time I reached the top level in IndyCars, my very first year in IndyCar, I won the national championship. And uh, wow. so that all of that, you know, helped with, you know, the sort of developing a reputation, if you will, that you belong in a business. And, and the, the best part about that is in at the Indianapolis 500 in 1965, where J Jim Clark won, I finished third. I was a rookie of the year, if you you know, which is something that obviously at Indianapolis seems to to have some value. <laughs> and, One of the many accolades you got during your career. Yeah, well, but the interesting part about that is I I really try and I did befriend both Jim and Colin throughout the month of May because you spend a lot of time here for that race. And then when we were saying our goodbyes the day after the race, I told Colin, I said, Colin, someday I would like to race to be in Formula One. And Colin says, Mario, when when you think you're ready, you just call me. I will have a I will have a car for you. And very I, nice. I've, I've I've said this, you know, I repeated it a thousand times, you know, but it was one of the happiest days of my life at the time for sure. Because knowing that yeah, uh, that was out there, it was up to me then to to develop some of the skills necessary to feel that, okay, now let's give it a try. And three years later, I did exactly that. I just worked very hard, as hard as I could to, to try to develop 
you know, some of the road racing skills. And I, I had won some IndyCar races on a road course. And, and you know, I had won some sports car races. You know, I won the 12-hour Sebring with, with my teammate, Bruce McLaren, and things like that. Did miles and miles of testing for the Le Mans, Ford Le Mans program, and, uh, which I offered my services as whenever you're testing, you can always count on me and all that. And, and all of that really helped me a great deal, as you can imagine. And, mm. you know, so the first race was the USGP, end of the year. And I had tested two weeks earlier in Monza. I was supposed to start, have a start in Monza, but I had to, I had to come back to the States on a Saturday to race mm. here because I was going for the championship and then go back Sunday for the, and they won't let me. They won't let me start, even though my car was on the grid. So my first official debut was the USGP at Watkins Glen a couple of weeks later. And I put the car on pole, which, you know, it surprised me even, obviously. But <laughs> the fact that I was next to Jackie Stewart was also premium, if you can, if you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was the best possible way that I could have had, you know, an outing first outing, especially with, with, with Lotus. So, yeah. And and from there, you know, it's obviously it's history in the sense that I had offers to race. I even Colin gave me full time, but I couldn't. In those days, I just could not afford to do it. Things were my contracts that I had here in the United States pretty much kept me here. And financially, I, <laughs> I have to say it, I just couldn't afford to make the move at the time. So... But I always kept that in the back of my mind. That's why from 1968 to 1974, I did Formula One pretty much, you know, part-time, if you will. Mm. That's when I drove for Ferrari at March and all that. But uh, but at least I already had a win under my belt because in 71, I won the South African Grand Prix, you know, for Ferrari. And uh, At Kiel Army, wasn't it? Yeah, so that, that must have been amazing. Well, it was indeed here again, you know, where Jackie Stewart finished second, you know, and then, then a few weeks later was a non-championship race in California at Ontario. And then there were two 100-mile races, two heat races, and the full Formula One contingent there, plus some American drivers at the time with what they called the Formula 5000. So they had mm. to split that the event in two 100-mile events because the Formula 5000 cars didn't have enough fuel to go full distance. Uh, <laughs> Grand Prix. But but I I, I, uh, I won both of those events, and that's when Ferrari offered me full-time, but I couldn't take it again. So That must have been devastating as an, as an Italian being offered a Ferrari seat. Truthfully, yes, but, you know, the factors were such that I... I figure, you know, maybe the right time will come, you know, that I'll be able to do that. And and the unfortunate part in that respect is that whenever I was free to go, then the seat was occupied and vice versa. <laughs> you know, so but it wasn't still even when I finally did a wound up with Colin Chapman in nineteen seventy-six. It was actually almost by accident. It was not designed because in nineteen seventy-five I I was pretty much a lead force to, 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 to develop a U.S. team with the Pernelli Jones team, you know, to, to come to, to, you, to, you know, to Formula One. And, and I know we hired the services of Morris Philippe, you know, obviously uh, Lotus fame, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to do the design and so forth. And, and you know, it was, was not a very successful 
you know, effort. But anyway, at that point is when I decided to to devote my time to Formula One primarily. And I was already, you know, 35 years old. But nevertheless, I think I was felt I was ready. And and then at the beginning of the 76 season, we're in Long Beach. And, and then I, I found out when I was on the grid that my, the owners, Parnelli Jones and Val Militic, they announced the retirement, the withdrawal, I should say, from Formula One without even telling me. So oh, that was nice was, of them. <laughs> uh, yeah, great. You know, James, uh, here it is. One of the announcers, the broadcasters, come puts a bike to me. I mean, a mic on my face just before we're ready to on the grid and they said mario what's your thought about that this would be your last formula one race i said what <laughs> oh no that is not the way you want to find out so things didn't go so well you know i didn't we had a, an issue with the engine in the race and then the next morning i'm having breakfast at a place called the queensway hilton and colin chapman was a couple of tables away and we were both alone and we both had our chin in our socks, totally. I mean, and I I looked at Colin, he looked at me, so I said, Colin, may I join you? And he says, yes, of course. So we started chatting and he felt, he said that, you know, he probably had the worst, worst season, worst weekend of his, of his career, you know, that weekend. And, and I said, well, I'm out of a job also. <laughs> I said, but I said, uh, and I would, I would definitely like to continue in Formula One. I needed this time to just do it full time. And he said, I wish I had a decent car to give you. And I said, if you, if you give me number one drive, I said, that we'll make the car. We'll, 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 we'll get the car the way we, we want it to be. And then he said, right, we're on. And then, you know, we just, he gave me a contract. And that's how it all began. Just as you can see, it was not very Official was very, you know, just just one of those things in life that that happened, and mm. and 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 again, you know, the 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 rest of it, you know, that seventy six season was really was quite good in the sense that we just improved the the car. We got better and better. We got a couple of podiums, and then winning the last race in Japan was probably the best thing that could happen for the team, you know, to to just keep that momentum. And then of course, I, I, actually, I actually wanted to, to just ask you about that race, actually the Fuji, because I've been watching back, especially in the past couple of weeks, as we knew you were coming on some of, some of the best races of your career. For me, that, that day in Fuji was the most impressive, one of the most impressive drives I've ever seen in Formula One. You said, you said the car wasn't great and obviously became a lot better the following year. But I mean, and that race maybe was maybe a little bit overshadowed by Hunt winning the championship and everything that happened to Lauda that year. But I mean, how did you yourself find the conditions? Because Nicky Lauda himself said, you know, it was maybe too dangerous to drive and he wasn't going to put his life on the line and stuff like that. And there you go, lapping the field. So you must have, have thought it was it was, it was was drivable at least. <laughs> well, you know, quite honestly, Sean, the, 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 what, what felt good about that is the fact that we were, we were on pole in, in the dry. You know, so the car was good. And then, of course, you know, everything changes when it, when it's conditions that we were facing, you know. But, you know, it's just one of those things. You just soldier on and kept it uh, on the track. I don't know how, because aqua playing down the straighter was just atrocious, you know. It was unbelievable. But anyway, just kept it on there. And as you say, things really worked out. We had a 
you know, we had a good go at it and it worked out. I decided to stay on wets right to the end, even though it was, you know, they were down to the cords. And, and I think James and some of the others stopped for for slicks, but I think I had enough pace that couldn't catch me. So I still won by over a lap, you know, uh, over mm. by A. And then James finished third and won the championship. Mm. Sounds very similar to what Lewis Hamilton did in Turkey a couple of years ago. Just staying out on 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 inters when everyone else thought, no, I can box for for slicks, and it was like, no, I I don't need to. I'm fast enough on the wets. I'm grand. I'm I'm quicker than all of you anyway. Well, that's you know, at, at that point, I I, I was as, you know as quickly as you possibly can, as as you can. You assess the situation. I'm not going in, you know, and because today I said I'm just going to stay out here, maximize the situation. And I hope it's good enough. And, and that's what it was. I think it was a right decision, obviously, in retrospect. But yeah, you, you have to make that decision sometimes and hope it's the right one. And it was. Mm. I want to go through, you, you've obviously went through many series before getting to Formula One. You went through stock car racing, NASCAR, then you graduated to open wheel via IndyCar and then obviously Formula One. But how, how was the transition from each of these types of car? How did you find that? Was it, was it difficult to kind of adjust to that sort of driving in each of those vehicles? Well, I think when you're driven by just this burning desire, you sort of have a way of adapting and because you really want to. It's all about, you know, really wanting something so badly. And at the end of the day, you know, each race car obviously has its own characteristics and you have to adapt to that. But you're looking for that balanced feel, which, you know, is universal. And But I found that especially driving sports cars, sports prototypes, where you don't have the luxury to really set the car up to your total liking because you have a partner, you know, and not everybody likes it the same and you adapt, and that teaches you to do exactly that. <clears throat> but I, I, I was just curious enough that I just wanted to do it. I didn't have to move around like I did. And I mean, <laughs> sometimes, you know, even my, my wife said, do you really have to do that? I mean, it seemed like you would have a weekend off this weekend <laughs> in your main, main effort. I said, well, I got to do it, you know. And so I just wanted to drive, drive, and drive, mainly because I was also curious as to what's going on in some of the other discipline, major disciplines. And, and I think, quite honestly, I benefited from that on a total, on, 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 on as far as the dimension of having just maybe a little more knowledge about the quirks and 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 how to you know to deal with situ different situations and grip levels and all that sort of thing. So I, on top of the fact that I just totally enjoyed doing that, I felt that I was gaining something of my own that I didn't even realize at the beginning that benefited me in so many situations. I give you I give you a quick example. Okay. What is the biggest difference between say dirt track racing, and say Formula One? Dirt track, you know, on a single seater is as basic as, as it could be and so on and so forth. You know something? I think uh, there's the similarity is there when it comes to wet races on, on the road course. Right. Why? Because on the dirt track, almost every lap, conditions change, the grip level. You keep searching for grip level and also car control. And then... That's what it, the situation is the same in, in, in a wet situation, you know, on a road course, 
where sometimes you just take the opposite line through the corners. You're looking for the dirty part of the circuit for grip and all those things were exactly. So like I said, one, believe it or not, where discipline does seem like the the, the biggest difference, it marries somewhere in the middle. And so these are some of the things that I think I benefited from by moving around. In terms of like you've done so many different disciplines, is there a type of track that you preferred? Is it oval to street or did it not make any difference to you? I quite honestly, it, it didn't make it. I, I, I didn't want to say even express openly, oh, I really, I love a road, road course or I love a, a, an oval. I try to approach it all the same because if you approach any event with a negative aspect, oh, well, you know, this is not really my favorite, you're only going there, you're defeated before you even get there. So I, if I had to choose just one, say road racing versus ovals, I definitely would choose road racing. I always said that. And, but at the same time, the fact that I've raced and, and won on ovals, whether it was on a dirt, dirt track, paved, a different mile, mile track. I went from a quarter mile track, half mile, dirt, third of a mile, one mile. Mile and a half, two and a half miles. So, and, and, and I won, and I won, won at least one race in all of it, you know. And I won, you know, even indoors when I was running three quarter midgets indoors. I won the biggest race of the year, you know, then Tina, New Jersey. It was basically indoor, you know, and it was a hockey ring, you know, obviously not on ice, but, uh, but, and, and there was, those races were very popular during the winter, mm. you know, indoor racing and uh, so again to be able to have a taste of all of it to me it was just you know obviously uh, how fortunate am i to, to have this opportunity speaking of all the many cars that you've driven the lotus the lotus 78 is the car you won your, your championship in was the the first ground effect car in formula one and obviously now it's it's back in formula one with the regulations this year for the first time in well decades what is different about a ground effect car from your point of view compared to like other cars with aerodynamics or without it at all? Does, did, did it even back then make that much of a difference? Could you feel it? Was that car really as good as everyone said it was? Well, yeah. I mean, Sean, the aerodynamic effect of a race car is just, it's really what a driver dreams about. I mean, because all it is, I mean, what do you want to, what's the objective? The objective is to go quick through the corners mm. and that's what it allows you to do. You know, so, yeah, I mean, once we, how, you know, effective ground effects are, you know, because with ground effects, you have downforce without penalty, without, you know, frontal area penalty. And then, so, yeah, it's all about it, obtaining, you know, getting the balance and then you go, it's, it's going to be quicker. And so, but that's what I found fascinating throughout my career to, to, to be part of some of those developments, you know, when all of a sudden you have a breakthrough. You know, something that no one knows, no one, you know, experienced before, neither us either, but we fell into it. And we, and then from there, all you do is just try to, you know, to perfect it, if you will. But I, on something you touched on, for instance, just like now, of course, the present Formula One car, you say it has ground effects, but so did the, the ones before. The only, you can, you can obtain some ground effect from flat bottom with diffusers. You still have, but with the tunnels, with the tunnel like that, they're coming back, came back to the tunnel. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's more pronounced, you know, and so it's more refined. And what it does, I think the objective was to, to obtain, get more suction without the turbulence that you get from the wings to, to achieve, you know, the proper grip, you know, the, or the proper effect, aerodynamic effect. So, and I think that they've achieved some of that. I think every driver in Formula will tell you that, you know, the new car will it's probably, you know, it's easier to, it's easier to follow closer mm. and all of that, which was the main objective of going in that direction. You ever experienced the porpoising? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. Is, is I remember. Headache so inducing. Yeah, especially the, the, the Lotus 80, which obviously had the much more downforce. All of a sudden, we just didn't have, even I was testing in, in Holland and Sunboard and done the straightaway. I think if I would have had a... It, False teeth, I think, that would have fell out of my mouth. <laughs> oh, that sounds, ex- that, that sounds very difficult at 200 miles an hour trying to concentrate on keeping your teeth in your head. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, mean, I was watching, especially at the early part of the season, some of these, some of these guys, I mean, just mm. bouncing around. <laughs> And I, I remember those days very, very well. We, we got we got dizzy just looking at them this year. It must have been must have been awful back in the seventies and eighties to have to go through it. Yes, it was. It was not very pleasant for sure. But you'll sacrifice as long as you get down for us for the corners. You know, you can't wait to get through the straightaway. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let me get to the corner so I can. And it feels like it feels like it's on rails then. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Was the was the seventy eight car your favorite F one car of all time, or or have you got a, a different favorite? Well, in nineteen seventy eight, there was a lot of seventy nine. Obviously, it was it was a refined model from the from the seventy eight. You know, this in seventy seven. <laughs> you know, yeah. we were always, the model car was a year ahead. Yeah. You know, but you know, in in seventy seven, obviously, uh, there were we were learning throughout. You know, the the, the season. More and more, we learned about skirts, all that sort of thing. And then 78, with a load of 79, the car was, if you look at it aerodynamically, aesthetically, it was much cleaner mm-hmm. in every respect and, and, you know, more refined. But, you know, I, I, I'd like both quite well. I mean, because I think in 1977, with a load of 78, we probably would have won the world championship easier, even in 78. We had some more reliability the engine we were we were losing you know the, we didn't have any reliability in the engine period they the problem is they were Cosworth was experimenting with us a bit too much you know we didn't need it we wanted we wanted to finish we needed a reliability which I mean I <laughs> I mean just one just the one race in Canada for instance I was a lap three laps from the end I was a lap ahead of Jody Schechter all I had to do is finish I let him unlap him I said my oil pressure was just non-existent. And I was supposed to bring it home and about the end of the straightaway, the two corners from start finish line, one corner actually, the engine blew up. And I mean, just winning that race instead of being classified sixth, I would have won the world championship. That's that's, that's (laughs) heartbreaking. Yeah, but I have a couple more of those, you know, then, yeah. And I ran out of fuel twice, leading also in '77. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But so I, I love, I love both years. I, I love the cars very, very much. It was doing what any driver hopes that it would do, and yeah, I understood the car very well. You, you got to go in this year's McLaren 
What did you think of that? Oh, it was amazing. I just wish I would have had enough time to f- to fit better in the car. The, <laughs> the, the pedal platform could come close enough to me. And, and so that to move me forward. And there's so many things that unfortunately couldn't accommodate for me to, to really squeeze the car the way I wanted to. Mm. But I mm. got the idea of it. And and it's everything and what I expected and more. I was just, I was, oh man, I wanted, I wish I would have had a full day, like a proper day to get the test and get me fitted properly, you know, so I could just put my teeth into it. But overall, though, I, Zach Brown and McLaren, a great deal for giving me that opportunity. So, so mm. I could say definitely, I don't have to estimate anymore. I know how much, how much, you know, the drivers would, you know, how much I would enjoy driving something like that nowadays. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And they're totally different from what you were driving, I guess, back in the, back in the day. Yeah, indeed, of course. But but I've been, you know, it's not that I be totally out of it, you know. Even though driving the the two seater and so forth, you know, it's it's more of an updated, you know, we're up to date situation, you know, with the, all the technology and and even did a little bit of testing for my for my son that nobody knows about. And so, yeah. We do now. <laughs> that's, that, that's an exclusive. Thanks very much. Nobody knew about it. <laughs> we'll bleep that part out. Don't worry. No, we won't. We'll leave it in. Well, you're not the only Andretti to, to venture into racing. Obviously, you say you, you had a twin brother that was was also in there. But you, you've got a bit, of, a bit of a dynasty that's following you. You've got your son and then his son going into the sport. Obviously, Michael Andretti in it itself is a very very successful driver over in the states and stateside and obviously did venture into formula one as well what was it like when you when you kind of he said to you you know dad i want to follow you in in your footsteps and 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 be a a racing driver like you well yeah it wasn't anything like that obviously because i think you know when you have a young family like i did obviously they, they were getting used to that environment you know going through a lot of races and so forth and and i had the I have three children, but the first two were boys, and Michael was the oldest. And at nine years of age, I put him in a go-kart, you know, just to, just to see. And in fact, I set up a course at back of a school. There was a huge parking lot and so forth. And immediately, like, for somehow, it like, looked like he took, like, duck to water for it. He had, you know... He, he was, he looked, he looked good right away. So I said, I enjoyed it. Yes, yes, yes. You know, so, <laughs> uh, so I started racing in a junior category and he, uh, and he just started doing really well. You know, I was winning and progressed him. And then, you know, we get to the point where things start getting more serious, you know, and, and I think somewhere along the line, I did, you know, I would say, you know, I hope you enjoy, you're enjoying this, you, you know, but I don't think there was ever a question whether Michael was going to continue it, quite honestly. And then his younger brother, Jeff, came along and the same thing, you know, it was almost a natural thing for them to just to do. I, I think then it comes third generation with Marco and I hope that his dad... <laughs> told him well you don't have to do it unless you join it <laughs> but uh, you know it's amazing both on on my side of the family and my brother Aldo's side of the family including ourselves that, that they're four race drivers you know so we got the 
with both sides, we have a third generation. And again, it's been our life. It's something that, you know, as you could see as a family, we have enjoyed tremendously. It's, you know, we've, we've seen all sides of it. You know, and my brother was not as fortunate. In fact, I think his career was determined at, after the, well, at the very last race of the first season when he had a, you know, a really a very serious accident and a qualifying heat. And in fact, he was in a coma a long, long time. And, and then he raced for 10 more years and he had another terrible accident in 1969, which actually and he, he had to retire. And then my younger brother, my younger son, Jeff, he had a, an accident in Indianapolis in 1992 during the race where left rear hub wheel just snapped and just went almost head on into turn two, 84.7 Gs, you know, they sustained Jesus. Had tremendous injuries in his legs and so forth. So again, what I'm saying is we know how fortunate like Michael and I have been Quite honestly, we don't take anything for granted. and But we also know that, uh, you know, that how cruel the sport sometimes can be. And uh, we experience some of that too. But in general, I must say, I don't think any of us would have faded what we did for anything else. Mm. Uh, you know, and again, from my standpoint, I was, Michael, I was the fortunate one, I think more than anyone, because of my activities back in, you know, in the 60s and 70s where... We all know about the safety aspect, you know, it was certainly not what we're enjoying today. And, and somehow I dodged a lot of bullets, you know, along the way and I got through it. So we know all that, but satisfaction and all the positives that I, as a family, we received from the sport. I don't think I know I could not have achieved doing anything else, period. And, and that love and passion continues, has never diminished, certainly now on my side. And you could see even, you know, with Michael, even, you know, as a team owner and so forth, he's, he's very ambitious. He wants to just have a taste of all of it. And I'm yeah. um, very proud of that. I'm very, very proud of that. Those objectives, which are real and strong. And that's it. I mean, it, the, the sport has been our life, you know, and, uh, and, and we're enjoying it. Yeah, well, your, your name is synonymous with motorsport. Everyone everyone who knows motorsport or watches motorsport in some capacity will know the Andretti name. And that's due to obviously two, well, lots of great drivers. And of course, the team owner of Michael Andretti. Oh. And now he's trying to bring a team into Formula One. Now, I, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but it, is it going to be possible in the next few years to see the Andretti name in Formula One as a, with Michael as a team owner? Well... It's not from the lack of trying, I can assure you. Yeah. yeah. And we're, we're trying very, very hard. I mean, I assure we're working every single day to accomplish that. <clears throat> and and again, it's the pure passion that drives us, you know, but we know the business. We know what we're dealing with. We know what we're facing. And the objectives are clear. And, and we're not giving up by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, some things are beginning to, to look positive. You, certain would, you, you certainly wouldn't be lacking for a fan base if and when it does come <laughs> off, because as, as, as Tiller said, I mean, anyone who even has an inkling towards motorsport knows the, the Andretti name. And I know I'd be buying lots of Andretti merch if he, if he made it into, into F1 as a team owner. We, we keep our fingers crossed that that might happen someday soon. Start saving your money then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, the, there's the confidence yes, that we like that's to hear. Definitely, <laughs> I'll start putting my fibers away now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
So the, the profile of F1 has changed completely in, in America. It's kind of blown up ever since Drive to Survive. And obviously before that, it was taking a very slow but steady growth. But now it's huge over there. Can you see that continuing into the future? Is that why the, the team Andretti want to get into it so much? Well, that's obviously, that's a positive. So there's a positive is a positive. And that's not the, the only reason. I mean, the fact that, as you said, Formula One, as really all of a sudden it's really captured like the imagination serious. of the motor racing fans in the United States like like no one could have ever possibly you know, estimated. And, and that's a good thing. It's a great thing for the sport. I mean, last, next year, I mean, we're coming up, we'll have three races here and not just something temporary. I mean, there's, you know, honest to goodness investment in that. So there's a future to that and then again it's a balloon you got to feed it you got to keep feeding the balloon you know it's it's not it wouldn't hurt to have another american team for sure you know on on the grid and but yeah and it's a formula one is enjoying great moments and, and of course you'd like to be part of it moving on to kind of your career and kind of looking back on it who would be your greatest competitor that you've faced on the track you, you know your 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 best rivalry or your best rival? Well, it's it's hard to define just one. All I can say is that uh, coming through the ranks, you know, you're always trying to progress. And as you go forward, you reach a certain level. There's always someone that's a number one in that particular, or at least, uh, you know, it's a person that a driver that you have, you're never going to be able to, to be successful unless, you know, you're able to get up to that level. And then I remember that I just mentioned before, but coming into the top ranks of the indie cars, the driver that obviously was doing you know, a lot of the winning and, and was a current champion was A.J. Foy. And he was five years my senior and he was already established. And, you know, my objective was, you know what, I got to work hard enough. And those are the ones that make you work harder because you have the clear objective. You know, I mean... I have a st- steep learning curve here, but you know what? It's up to me to either get it done or, or forget about it. And, uh, and, uh, and, and it keeps you motivated. In Formula One, I, I mentioned earlier, it's when if you win or if, you, if you're on pole, what puts more premium on that position is who is behind you, who is strictly. And my debut in Formula One, who was the man at that time, current world champion was Jackie Stewart. And, uh, you know, so, you know, to win race, race uh, my first race and have Jackie Stewart segment, to be on pole, my first race, Formula One race, and Jackie Stewart next to me, it, it gives you the feeling, say, oh, my God, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you. you. You feel that, you know, maybe I do belong. You know, you you have, you always, you always, not, you don't, you doubt yourself to some degree, but you need these moments of, to encouragement, of encouragement to feel, you know what, uh, I, I think I belong here. I'm okay. You know, and you got to keep <laughs> telling that to yourself. It, uh, it's, uh, it's so important to be able to have that, uh, the confidence, you know, that, that drives you and, and, and makes you better and continue and, and you continue to, uh, you know, to just try to enjoy what you're doing, you know? And, and so again, I just mentioned too, but as, as decades, as time goes on, there's always someone out there that's better than you. And then almost every season, you could probably 
say, oh, man, this dude, man, I got to, you know, I got to figure it out and, and all that, which is, that's the beauty of it. And, and I don't think, I think it's a, it's a work in progress as far as learning to the very end. I think, you know, out of my, you know, 800, almost 900 races in my career, wow. I think that I learned something right to the very end. You know, and, and, and that's the honest truth. I mean, there's always something that I, you know, I keep reflecting and all that and, and put clarity on something. And, but it's such a complex situation that you never want to feel, oh, yeah, now I know everything. Oh, yeah, I got it. I got it. No, you don't. You know, you just keep, keep searching, keep searching. A, a follow up to that then is if you're looking at the Formula One grid just now, who impresses you? Which driver in the current crop do you like the look of? Well, you have to right now to look at the Max Verstappen, of course, which I think by winning consecutive world championship, I think it sort of confirms very well that, you know, he certainly deserves what he's done. And and then the other part, is you look at the revelation to me of, of, of 2022 in Formula One was George Russell. You know, the, mm. look at what he has done, you know, with Mercedes and, you know, being alongside a world champ, you know, it's multi, multi world champions, we all know. And Lewis, how he performed, you know, not just qualifying, but also racecraft. And, and that's a beautiful thing to see, you know, that, that here was a talent that needed the equipment. And that sort of brings to, you know, to light how important it is, you know, to, uh, to be able to match that up. And, but, you know, the nature of Formula One, you know, is that, uh, you know, not all cars are the same, you know, it's not a spec series and the, but it's, uh, it's always been like that, you know, you have the haves and have nots in that. Mm -hmm. And the objective was always, you know, to be at the time. I'm talking as a driver, like how fortunate was I to have my first experience in Formula One with a top team like Lotus and then you know win with Ferrari at the you know when I was at you know at the very early stages of, of my career in Formula One so it's important to be you know to be up there and otherwise it's really almost impossible to evaluate the real talents you know but but nothing new it was always like that in formula 1 but but you look at drivers that you know are capable because they've proven it you know both the ferrari drivers let's face it i think uh, there's no question in my my mind that charles leclerc charles leclerc will, will be a world champion you know mm -hmm. in the future and, and perhaps carl sainz as well and i think again i i you know, you could probably go on and on. There's there's several on there that and and some that as they move up the scale. I mean, Lando Norris is showing, you know, the qualities again of a of a potential winner. And but there's so much to look forward to, you know, in in the sport today at the top level. I mean, the, there's things that you know that unpredictable, and and that's what makes it interesting. There's fans, you know, and I wonder. So and so, some some driver kept captured your imagination, you know, and you start following a little bit closer and reflecting, and that's the beauty about a sport, obviously. And and again, but there's the the roster, you know, that the of, of all the top level of the disciplines is very rich nowadays. Formula One, you know, some great talents and 
and the teams are closing up. You could see that, you know, McLaren has been knocking at the door and, you know, you, you, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, with the, you know, Sauber coming on, you know, with Audi on board, a lot of things. And, and of course, I think never, ever, ever count out Mercedes as you, as you can imagine. How long Red Bull can maintain, you know, obviously their performance. So, you know, a lot of good things to look forward to for sure. Yeah, the, the sport's very much in good hands. But I want to move to a different sport now because you've also driven for over many years or in, in Le Mans as well. What was the attraction to Le Mans? Obviously, you've been in this open wheels for, for many, many years and, and then you, you decided to go into a completely different way and go to Le Mans. Well, you know, here again, I think, you know, Le Mans, I mean, why not? I mean, it's uh, one of the classic, classic events ever, you know, in motorsports. And then having that opportunity, I mean, I, I jumped at, you know, at the chance to do it very early on in my career, very early on, and uh, way back to 1966. And always uh, just loved driving that circuit, you know, the speed, tremendous speed and all of that, everything that uh, all the challenges that it provides. You know, I love, you know, I love Sebring. Uh, 12 hours, it was a tough one. Daytona in so many ways. I, I, I enjoy my, my sports car racing very much. The cars are always very interesting. Technically also, you know, uh, over the years, you know, that even the, the design, the aerodynamic aspect of those cars when they started coming to downforce and all that. So, yeah, yeah, I, that was uh, to me a very special challenge that uh, that I loved, and I think here again, you'd be surprised how much that teaches you about uh, be able to to drive, you know, to to be still fast, have uh, the the pace without taking so much out of the car. It just teaches you, always teaches you something that will benefit along the way, you know, and whatever your main efforts are. My main effort was always either, you know, Indy cars or Formula One as far as the open wheel situation. Everything else just was filling in. And what was it like having to rely on teammates as well? Obviously, you quite clearly had the caliber that you require to win championships and win races, and you knew that. But then, obviously, having to rely on teammates to continue that throughout, obviously, portions of the race for your team. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it all goes with it. You know, that's why, you know, sometimes you figure, oh, my goodness, you know, I'm so, how fortunate am I? Or other time, maybe a couple of times uh, that, uh, unfortunately, I said, you know, maybe I'll stay on an extra stint or something. You know? but, <laughs> uh, I can do another two hours. <laughs> I think everybody has that moment, you know, but, but overall, I've been really, really fortunate to be with really uh, absolutely. And, you know, on name Jackie for one, you know, we mm. have some great success together. And of course, Bruce McLaren that I was winning you know, see for the first time like that was strong. You know, Chris Heyman and the so I, I've been I've been I've been very lucky. You know, while we're t- talking about Le Mans, obviously in the past kind of five six years, Fernando Alonso has really brought back to light the idea of the triple crown of motorsport. So Monaco, Indy 500, and Le Mans. Fernando did everything except Indy, try as he might, because his Honda wouldn't work, which is the story of his career recently. And (laughs) unfortunately, you yourself obviously missed out on the Le Mans of that triple. Do you ever regret not being the second person ever to claim that? Or for that matter, do you have kind of any major regrets from your career? Or do you kind of just, you know, what happened happened kind of approach to things? Well, yeah, you regret to some degree, but come on, at least I have a class win. You know, in uh, 1995, we were second overall, but first in class. So I still have a, I have a first 
trophy. I don't know if that counts. I guess it doesn't count. You know, nobody unless they win it over one of mine. It counts more than Fernando's version, <laughs> for sure. So I still can claim that I won them. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, overall, obviously, is, is what you want. But uh, there were, you know, some situations there that took us out of it. You know, we should have won in 95. And uh, I made a mistake. And so the Bob Wallach, you know, that the either mistake, I think, cost us. And, and that's, that's, that's unfortunate, but that's the fact. I, I'll change that in the record books to two and a half out of three of the Grand Slam. <laughs> I, I, I push it even further. 2.9. 2.9. Yeah, 2.9 <laughs> out of three of the Grand Slam. I'll accept that. You once said, if everything seems under control, you're just not going fast enough. Do you think that still applies to modern Formula One cars with their insane downforce and massive tyres and power steering? Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course. Of course. I mean, let's face it. You leave anything on the table and you're not going to be there. You know, somebody else is going to, to do it and better than you. It's just to be able to, to be on pole. And, and that quote came from the, we were, you know, the after I came out of the cop, we were just writing, you know, my, I think it was like the third or fourth book it was. And, and the co-author asked me, he says, explain to me qualifying. And the first thing that came to mind was exactly that. <clears throat> because I, you know, there are times when whenever I, you know, would would have a pole qualifying lap, it's a lap that I probably thought I could never duplicate without, you know, maybe a disaster, if you will. Mm. <laughs> and, and that means, you know, I think I just rang everything out of that car that I thought I, it, it was possible. Like you were, you're right on the edge of disaster. And I figured this, I hope this works because I don't think I can do it any better. That's all. And I'm sure that you've probably asked this, you know, some of the drivers have had those experiences will probably tell you the same thing. And that's why that came to my head. That came to mind at that point, you know, when I was asked that question. Mm. And then also, you know, I was thinking and watching Wide World of Sports here in America where they were showing some downhill skiing. And I remember Franz Klammer. And I, I met the gentleman, Franz Klammer, coming downhill. And I mean, he was just totally on the edge of disaster. <laughs> but just making it, and he, and he sets a world, sets a record, obviously, and, and wins gold. And, and so it was the same thing as in racing. You know, when you're competing at that level, you have to be just on the edge of disaster, but avoid it. And then that's the tough part. (laughs) And that's 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 the best chance of setting a record. Just pushing boundaries all the time, pushing, pushing limits, pushing the limit. Pushing the limit. Pushing the limit. Mm. Okay, so what's your favorite story to tell from your motorsporting life? You've obviously you get invited to dinner parties all the time, I'm sure, and (laughs) and you get to speak to to many people. What what's your greatest story that you get to share with at these events that you go to? I'm sure you've got some great ones. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> I would have to have some time to think, but I'm just looking at the wall. And uh, at the 100th anniversary of this, I was invited to Stuttgart. And, and, and who am I sitting with? I'm sitting with Moss, Sterling Moss, Manuel Fanjo, wow. John Surtees, <laughs> Bill Hill, all of my heroes. <laughs> of the time, you know, when I was really coming through, you know, when I was really obviously dreaming about being a racing driver. And I said, 
what a wonderful thing, what a blessing that was to have this opportunity. And you know, what's interesting is that I had a captivating audience. You know why? Because I really knew the particulars about their careers. <laughs> and that fascinated them. It says, you know, they, they said, I can't believe you know so much about us. I said, oh, you'll never know. You'll never know, you know, how much I enjoy those moments and so forth and how much I wish I was in your shoes and all that sort of thing. So it was gratifying to be able to, to have, you know, moments with such greats and then having them appreciate the fact that I knew so much about their careers. I'd say they all appreciated that. <laughs> especially, <laughs> especially in an age before kind of mobile phones and the internet or YouTube where you can go back and if, if, when, if, if, yeah, just quickly if you knew it back then, it's because you were absolutely ingrained in their careers, which I'm sure was e even, even more impressive from their yep, point of view. Yep, yep, yep. That sounds like some dinner party though. Uh, indeed. Indeed. You know, when I was just a young lad, <clears throat> as you say, there was no television so far, you know, in the early fifties and we were in Luca, you know, in, in Tuscany there. And my brother and I used to go to the movies because they, there would be an intermission halfway through the, so to let the smoke out of the theater. And then when they would resume, there was always some, some reels of whether, whether it was, but sports, you know, basically. And, you know, motor racing was very prominent, as you can imagine, you know, with the, all the brands, uh, you know, Maserati, Ferrari. And, and that's the only time you could see some live, you know, video. And we used to go to the movie wow. just for that. We didn't give a damn about the movie, you know, <laughs> what it was. You just wait for the intermission. You know, but you try to grab as much as you could as far as seeing the real thing, you know, because the rest was basically just, you know, you, you could buy, you see a newspaper or magazines. Mm. That is true passion for your sport, all right? <laughs> yeah. We've talked about, you know, some of the great people you've you've raced against and Formula One has enjoyed some world-class rivalries over the past, well, 50, 75, 76 years. And I just bring this up because today, as we're recording, is the, the 13th of December, which is the one-year anniversary of Max Verstappen beating Lewis in Abu Dhabi to claim his first championship. And they've come to blows repeatedly over the past several years. So even this year, when Hamilton wasn't quite on par with Verstappen, when they were anywhere near each other, they kept crashing in true F1 rivalry fashion. Where would you rate kind of their rivalry in terms of like historical battles? You have Senna Prost, Schumacher and Hakkinen, Hunt and Lauda. What for you was maybe the best rivalry in F1 or just motorsport history that you witnessed? Well, I think you mentioned some great rivalries and they all have their great moments. And let's face it. I mean, okay, you look at the, you know, what happened between Prost and Senna and so forth. You know, I think it was at in Spa and and all that, but you know, that's motorsport. Those are the greatest moments of motorsport because they will always be remembered. And whoever witnessed any of that is said to will have the moment of their life. <laughs> yeah, and let's face it, you know, with Lewis and, and, and Mac here again, there's nothing healthier than that, in my opinion. And even from a driver's standpoint, that's what you cherish. You know, those rivalries, like, you know, when I look back, some of my rivalry, like, you know, with AJ, AJ Ford, for instance, you know, which was not the kindest man, you know, I was always ready to run away from him, you know, after some, you know, just 
dicey moments, you know. But and sometimes things are correct, sometimes not so correct. But you know, you get over it. At the end of the day, you know, everybody's fighting for the same turf, you know, really hard. And and the, I ass, I assure you that these are these are highlights, highlight moments in their lives. Mm-hmm. It always will be, you know. When they reach my age. They'll say, oh, I'm so happy I've, you know, I had those moments. And and the fact that you have a rivalry means also that you're competitive, you're up there. Yeah. And and that's really that's a reward ultimately that you you feel you, that you derive from this. And so yeah, I mean, the sport has been rich of that, and that's the beauty of it. That's what makes the sport what it what it is, you know, just the, the best sport in the, on the planet. Completely agreed. <laughs> okay, I, I realise we're keeping you keeping keeping you for a while now, so I've got one question to kind of end our interview with you. I mean, I could sit and chat to you all night, but I'm sure you've got somewhere else to be after this. But uh, prime Mario Andretti versus prime Michael Andretti, who wins the race? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we won't, we won't be getting we won't be getting Michael on the podcast now, will we? I guess what the answer will be. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever have that kind of little battle on when he was learning to race? Did you have the, those sorts of fights in in cars? Yeah, he, yeah, we had. You know what's interesting is, yeah, my my wife. I I only you know started appreciating what she was going through when. Both of us were on the track, and then and she she said, "Mario, is your son?" And every time that there is a competitive overtake, you two always have to touch wheels. <laughs> <laughs> I said, "I don't know why it just happened that way." <laughs> and, uh, you know, Michael was always tough. I mean, he was he was as good as anyone ever raced against. And not just because he's my son, but uh, you look at his record and his. You know, he, he came out of the cockpit when he was at the top of his game still. And I just re- wish that he could have kept in. in he, would, he would have been patient enough to stay in Formula One, you know, to just wait for the Senna situation to, to get resolved. You know, that when Senna finally, when Ayrton finally went with Williams, he would have had the ride there. And I would love to have seen him stay there because the second year would have been a totally different story. But nevertheless, yeah, I mean, Michael and I, you know, that we were on podium in an IndyCar race 15 times, first and second, five times. Wow. And on, on the front row, 10 times. So it was 5, 10, and 15. That's got to be some sort of record. <laughs> Well, it, to me, it's it's so incredibly rewarding, you know, as a father and son situation, you know, at the end of the day. And we had the closest finish, you know, in, in 1986 in, in Portland. He should have won. Obviously, he had a fuel pickup problem and I beat him by about two inches. Were you on the Christmas card list that year? <laughs> he, he was not happy. He was not happy. My, my wife even said, Mario, how could you do that? I said, very easily. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, you know, by the way, Amy just as uh, just reminded me, it was Father's Day, you know, here in the States. It was Father's Day. And Michael on the podium was not, you know, very happy. And <laughs> said, Michael, Michael lightened up his Father's Day. He goes, oh, happy Father's Day. <laughs> brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. The ride, the ride home on the airplane was very, very quiet. 
<laughs> did, did, he, did he get you a gift or did you say you have the big trophy that's your gift <laughs> yeah that's my gift and, and stuff it yeah oh that's very good <laughs> well i i know i well i know from me my, myself I, i've really really enjoyed this podcast and speaking to an absolute legend of motorsport i wish i could sit and talk to you for hours on end i'm sure there are many stories that we could that we could delve into and i'm sure right. coops and sean feel exactly the same yeah. Absolute honor. Thank you so very very much. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I enjoyed the conversation myself, for sure. Great. Well, thank you very much. And we'll see you again in the future, hopefully. Yes. Hopefully on the grid, not too far in the distance. Bye-bye. That's right. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you very much, Mario. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, that was absolutely incredible. Wow, that was amazing, wasn't it? Thanks very much for listeners tuning in on Facebook. We're not cutting the podcast just yet. Let's move on to the news that dropped today. It has been the principal shuffle is all we can call it. It was madness from eight o'clock this morning until around about 10.30 where team principals were dropping and jumping ship and going to other other places. So Coops, can yeah, you well, give us the lowdown on what happened this morning and then we'll talk right. and give our opinions on them. Okay, so we had the... As you say, it was a merry-go-round. There was a lot of stuff. So over the course of the last 15 hours, this is what I tweeted. So Josh Capito leaves Williams. Fred Brasseur moves to Ferrari. Andreas Seidel moves over to Salva as CEO, not team principal. And then McLaren appoint Andreas Stella as the new team principal. All this happened within the last, well, about 15 hours when I tweeted that this morning, about half past 10, as you see. Yeah, so between 8 and 10, the the, the notifications were just going absolutely mental. Uh, so what do we what do we think? So Fred, Fred Vasseur to replace, obviously, the outgoing Binotto of Ferrari. Is that a good move? Obviously, Charles Leclerc will be happy because he obviously started his career in F1 at Sauber. Uh, do you think that's just to kind of, to, to kind of appease Charles Leclerc? Do you think it was his decision? No, do you think it was not no, his decision, but 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 his not the decision is wrong. But I mean, do you think he gave his opinion to convince the Ferrari team bosses? I, no, I, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think Charles is that kind of character. I think if this was a Mercedes or Red Bull for sure, I think it's absolutely fair that you could say Lewis or Max had some sort of not necessarily hand in it, but some sort of maybe push towards it. But no, I, I'm, I've no doubt Charles would be happy. He obviously got on very well with Fred, who gave him his debut, but. Did a good move Ferrari? I don't think it's a bad move for Ferrari because I think he'll come in and continue that. He'll definitely continue the the kind of ethos of a no-blame culture that Benotto successfully brought into Ferrari. Is he... Like, ah, I, I, I like Fred Vasseur. I think he seems like a lovely guy. And he seems like a very good man-manager. Is he going to make Ferrari win the championship? Well, if they win it next year, I don't think you could put the credit on him. Let's put it that way. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a bit... I, I don't understand it personally. I don't. I don't know what he's done at Sauber to mm. to really deserve it. I'm not saying they're they're terrible team Sauber, and they and they certainly you know kept it going year, at, 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 at the level that yeah yeah you know it, it's a it's a decent return. But I don't know that it's it was it was a bit of a surprise to me for mm. him to to be promoted to to such a, a prestigious team like Ferrari. Coops, your opinions uh, on it? Well, kind of disagreeing with you a wee bit. Uh, That's fine. Opinions are varied mm-hmm. and plenty. I mean, he has the experience. He's been in and around the paddock since and racing since you're talking way back 96. He founded a team 
1996 and won the French Formula 3 Championship in 1998 with that team. He went over to ART Grand Prix and joined Jean Todd's team. In terms of Formula 1, he was the team principal Renault for a spell. Joined that kind of at the wrong time. There was a bit of politics, which he's going to know all about now that he's joining Ferrari. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Maybe that's why they know, took him, because he has some experience in it. <laughs> yes. So you understand. I think that's good because... You know, to turn a negative into a positive, he went to Renault as the team principal. He was a casualty of power struggles and politics. He'll understand what that's all about. And he's now going to the one team on the grid that just, that's the ethos that's ingrained in that team. So he'll yeah. understand how to manage that. He's worked with Salber. He's He, he came in during the, it was a, a Clattenborn, I want to say her name was. I may have pronounced that wrong. Monique, uh, that we was, probably have. Yes. <laughs> Manisha Kaltenborn. Cartonborn, yeah, that was the team principal at Salber that had like 14 drivers signed up for two seats. You know, yep. so he righted that, he he sorted that all out. I think he cancelled the deal for them to take Honda and took on Ferrari engines, you know, and he's righted that ship. I mean, he was the main man to pursue Audi to come to Salber. He's done a lot of good stuff behind the scenes. So I, to be honest, I think you kind of, it's very easy because he's very unassuming to... Mm. To, to kind of underestimate him. He's mm. not your Christian Horner, Toto's, like they're at the front of the grid, they're taking all the limelight. You're not your Andrew Seidel because everyone loves McLaren. He just quietly gets on with his business. He's not a good to Steiner. He kind of takes all of, a good good proportion of the good qualities from several of the team principals and he just quietly gets on about his job. If anybody needs a quiet period, it's Ferrari. They need to stay. They need a stable. They need a a kind of unassuming influence on the team. Maybe not unassuming is the wrong word, but they need a, a kind of calming influence. I have heard. And, he, I have heard he can be quite firm on staff behind closed doors when the need calls for it. And maybe it was the case that Benotto wasn't. Well, maybe, but that's the good thing. It's behind closed doors. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And Ferrari need to get back to that. The need to have the guy who's approachable with the media, approachable with the fans, approachable when he needs to be, but when he needs to, you know, whip a few things into shape and let people know, he's going to do it. But he, but the, the, the good thing is these staff will know that it won't come out in the media, it won't be done in the media, it'll be done at your debrief, it'll be done whenever it is. If somebody makes a complete cock-up, they'll get the earful. But that's it. Even if Netflix are at the door, he's not going to Gunter Steiner the door closed, is he? <laughs> no, you know. So I, it's a good. I think it's a good move. I, Unless... I, and honestly, just to finish it off there before we move on, I don't really see who else could take it. Is my yeah. thing. It's one of those. Who do you? Who is it? You know. Who would you? And Flavio Briatore. Well. <laughs> uh, but on Fred he actually did give me one of my favourite quotes of the year there's no such thing as luck or bad luck with DNFs sometimes it was technical sometimes the engine and sometimes <laughs> Latifi <laughs> so he's got, he's got is... a bit of, he's got a bit of humour behind him I think he's got a bit of sarcasm in there which is a Scotsman I can't beat a bit, of, a bit of sarcasm you've got to love that so that is the best so quote we're... of the season for sure <laughs> absolutely well uh so the other move that obviously went along with that, obviously Sauber had a, an empty space available for a team principal to fill. And Andreas Seidel moved from McLaren over to replace 
the outgoing Fred Vasseur. Well, he didn't replace him. He didn't. He's the CEO of the group. It's the same thing. Well, it's not because his first job. But also, Zach Brown came out and said that Seidel actually went to him earlier in the season. They reckon around about the just before the summer break or during the summer break to say he's been approached for a move in 2024, 2025, I think. So this is 100% Audi wanting him at the helm German at the helm makes total sense and absolutely quite aside from the fact and that Andrew Seidel well, is, is the best team principal on the grid in all, all things he's absolutely phenomenal he's a yeah. very very good move for him I think he's made I think he's made a genius choice here and essentially when Binotto was let go despite Ferrari saying a week ago that he's not going anywhere <laughs> and mm. how how much of a thin veil was that did we ever believe no them? not a <laughs> no. I don't think I've ever believed anything Ferrari has said in public as soon as that happened and Fred Vasseur said, can I go to Ferrari? They said, yeah. Apparently the head of Audi or Sauber called up Zach Brown and said, can I have Seidel now? And Zach was like, yeah, all right. Oh. So apparently it was, <laughs> it was all very yeah. amicable. Apparently it was all very easy and amicable. Now, from McLaren's point of view, they don't see Sauber as a competitor for at least the next three years. So it's not like he's right. going there and they're going to beat him for fourth in the championship. It's certainly not next year. And But yeah, I, I think it's... A, I th- well, also, Zach Brown doesn't seem very confrontational. He's not the kind who'd go, no, F you, you're not going anywhere. You're stuck here. He, he was very similar with Carlos Sainz move, wasn't he? he, he you know, if, he dri- if a driver doesn't want to be there, I guess if a team principal doesn't want to be there, he, he'd much rather facilitate them For a sure. friendly move. So, you know, there's a future relationship if need be, you know. And also, I, th- I think just genuinely, just Zach Brown is genuinely just a good guy. I think he recognised from his own point of view that this is a good career move for Andre Sainz. Because like I've said, mm-hmm. it's not a like-for-like swap. He's going to be the CEO of Sauber, which means he will be the CEO of Audi when they come through, the Audi racing team when they come through. And who wouldn't mm. say no? To, who would say no to that job? Zach Brown would have taken that job if it was offered to him. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but unfortunately for us McLaren fans, it, it means we, we're not going to have him there, you know. Mm. And, and the guy who's coming in is Andrea... Stella. Andrea Stella. Andrea Stella. So... Oh. He is connected to Ferrari because he used to be the race engineer for Kimi Raikkonen. He done a lot Michael of stuff. Michael Schumacher. Michael Schumacher, and then he came in as the technical director uh, at McLaren. Twenty fifteen, couple of years ago. Twenty fifteen. So it's quite. A few He's years been there ago. for a while, actually. Now, yeah. So I thought. I mean, it's all been planned. I mean, this has all been known about. And to, to kind of confirm what Sean was saying, I must have read the same article. So. Yeah, Andrew Seidel approached Zach Brown and said, I'm not renewing my contract in 2025. I'm going to... And another reason for that is he works at Porsche, mm. which is he a BW brand. Yeah. So they they must have, the minute they Audi decided they're coming in, they must have went, we want him. Yeah, we want him back. I don't think sure. we, there was no one else. I don't think Audi had the thought of anyone else. They, I mean, he's worked at Porsche under VW Group. He knows how they operate. He knows what they want. He's German. He's very good at his job. So, and also, I think as well, the fact that he's moving not as a team principal and moving up may probably made the decision to let him go a couple of years earlier a lot easier. For sure. And also, as Zach Brown said, when they said they promoted Andreas Steller, Andrea Steller, not Andreas, uh, they said it's the, the, the depth of the people they have within McLaren means that they didn't have to go, well, who have they got? They've just been like, right. You want it? Morning. Let's go. Let's have a chat. Let's see. And he's got the pedigree to do it. Mm. Uh, oh, I don't absolutely. know much about him, but he's got the pedigree. But we still have two seats that need to be filled. And those are? Williams, Josh Capito. And Josh F- Capito left. Yes, yes, that's correct. Yeah. And FX Dimension, if that's how you pronounce it, was the technical director, has also been punted. 
which Williams. Yes. So oh, okay. So I think that's not a decision because they've kind of framed it as he delayed Josh Caputo delayed his retirement to come to Williams. I think Donaldson Capital ran out of patience. Who are the people that right. own Williams? Because they were eighth in the constructors. Now they're tenth again and not close to nine. You know, uh, so. I think they kind of got a bit fed up and thought, look, we've went back again. We don't want this. Mm. The fact lots, that of it's whis- not- lots of whispers on Twitter about who could fill that <laughs> potential seat. Team principal, what about Susie? Toto Wolf's wife. Susie Wolf's obviously been... Very good job uh, in Formula E. Yeah, Formula E. Very good when it comes Fiddly. to yeah, but she, and- she could do it. Just imagine husband and wife on the on the grid, you know, team team principaling. She does know Williams very well. She's tested their Formula yeah. One cars a couple of times. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know if Susie would want to do that when you're considering she'd be the team principal of a team that's a customer engine to the person who runs <laughs> runs Mercedes. You know, it, you know, I don't. I mean, maybe has, has she been given enough opportunity to bleed her teeth and get into the whole ethos of being part of a Formula One team but and running it? I don't know. She does have Toto Wolf as a husband and could, you know. I'm sure copy or you know <clears throat> imitate what he has done over the last and several years. Nothing bad has happened from imitating something else, pink Mercedes. <laughs> uh, that, yeah. that, that won a race. Well, yeah. it did win a race, but you got to think that if Susie comes in as a team principal, she's got to find her own way. She can't be yeah, total. It, it, nobody it, it, can be total. You know, it's just not going to work. In fairness to her, it won't look good for her own career if she comes in and just copy, oh, uh, husband, can I copy your work? This doesn't look good for her. It doesn't look good for Williams either, to be perfectly honest. Now, I, I actually think they've made a massive mistake here. Yes, they've gone backwards this year. I don't necessarily think it's Josca Pito's fault. I think he's done a lot good. I think it's actually Darlton. I really like him. So do I. I actually think it's Darlton's fault for not sacking off Nicholas Latino a year ago but genuinely because Alex Albon had an extraordinarily good year having not driven a Formula 1 car in two years and not driven any of the new style of it he's just come straight back in and dominated someone who's been there solidly for three years if they had another even someone who scored 15% more points than Nicholas Azifi they wouldn't have finished at the bottom this year I think that I think it's actually Darlton's fault completely that they were still so wrapped up in how much does that billionaire's kid bring us, even with a cost mm-hmm. cap, and we've put a lot, a lot of money into this team already, but let's not put in quite as much because we still have a billionaire's kid in the car. I think it was their own fault for being <laughs> greedy idiots, to be perfectly honest, and the Oscar Pito's borne the brunt of it. I mean, it could just be a case of, like, FX the Dimension was, was a VW guy who came with Joss. It was Joss the guy. He picked him. Hmm. So again, it may be one of those situations where they want to clean house. Like Jost is going, that's his guy. We want to bring, if the team principal comes in, let him decide who he wants to bring in in the technical department. But I mean, it's just curious at the fact that he's going, he's just went with Jost at the time of a pretty poor season and a pretty poor car, to be honest. It's very late to do it. Yeah, do you see Jost coming back in any role, anywhere, any team, any any place? Well, unless somebody's struggling to find somebody. You know, I don't think Andre Seidel is his first job was going to bring Oscar Pito in mm-hmm. uh, uh, at Alfa Romeo. Mm-hmm. You know, Salva. You know, it's the last year of Alfa Romeo. Uh, somebody did actually ask us in a comment on Facebook that Salva still exists. But anyone who's listening, Salva does exist. The Alfa Romeo thing is a branding exercise. It's still Salva. It's just called Alfa Romeo. Here's and this. This, is a, this is the last year of the Alfa Romeo branding. So mm-hmm. probably for the next two years, 24, 25, it'll probably be Salva. 
Mm. And then rebanded completely as Audi for the 26, and they'll have their big, you know, ceremony of Audi and here's, the here, new engines. Here's a wild shout. Alpine get rid of Otmar Safnauer and hire Jos Capito. <laughs> Just putting it out there. I haven't, <laughs> I, ha- I haven't had a bash on Otmar yet. I needed to get it in there. Yeah, if you didn't mention Otmar Saf- Safnauer in a negative way on the last <laughs> podcast of the year, then you would have been, you know, letting the team down, let's be honest. I had to get well, it in. I, I mean, uh, from the accru- incredulity, if that's a word, I've probably got that completely it is, wrong. It is a word, yeah. Uh, yep, yeah, of Sean. Alpine do actually like Otmar Snafnick. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> they, do, they do actually think he's pretty decent. Yeah, but so, they, they also liked Cyril the Beatable, didn't they? Who, oh, by the way, actually, a bit of a news, I found this might be nothing. Cyril the Beatable has been hired by Hyundai for their sports Yes, thing. I did hear about that. So <laughs> is, is, there, is there a plan for Hyundai to drop in a wee Formula One? There's no, no room at the inn at the, at the moment. F1 aren't taking any other teams in unless our guest Andretti, Mario Andretti, is telling the truth. And the, the, you know, well, he did. He did, it's getting closer. He, he did say they'd have news soon. Mm, let's hope so. Yeah. Let's hope so. How great would it be to have 12 teams on the grid in 2026? <sighs> That'd be so good. Uh, also, just a quick, quick one, and was talking about power units. Formula One were notified by Honda want uh, a note of interest to be an engine manufacturer from 2026. <laughs> so it looks like now nobody listening to in, this in out in out shake it all about. Now, we do the Honda Koki and we turn <laughs> around. That's what it's all about. Right, hey. we don't, we, right, it's the end of the year and we're allowed to tell her to sing, but please don't do that again. <laughs> It looks, from all intents and purposes, Honda made the wrong decision to leave, and I think Honda no. are realizing that. Well, it's, it's, shocked. It, it's about right because they left in for for 09 and came back in twenty fifteen, and then they left in. Well, they didn't leave, but they left in twenty twenty one to come back in twenty six twenty seven. Yeah, it fits their bizarre wavy timeline. Like, bleep this out if you want to, but shit, I get off the pot, lads. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, uh, it looks like they, they made the decision to leave because you know they've decided to go in different ways but I think like, even in board level it looks as if Honda kind of looked at it and went kind of jumped the gun there lads uh, they, they said it so, themselves yeah. they said because of like the, of, around the uncertainty around the 2026 regulations we're not going to stick around just to maybe it happen but it's like well, you should have waited another six months, lads. <laughs> uh, just, just, just wait a bit. Wait until you know, you've but... at least heard it. Yeah. So then, so then they left, but then they were still dealing with the engine, and now they've got the Honda branches back on the car, and it's a bit of a, yeah, as you guys say, it's a bit of an out, an out. But yeah, the formally, it's not a binding agreement to be a manufacturer twenty six, but what it does is it allows them to be at the table when these regulations are being discussed. Now, what's interesting so, is, are, are they coming in just as an engine supplier or are they coming yes. back as a works team? No, engine supplier only from 26, according to this discussion. So Red, Red, Red Bull, Bull and Alphatari. So yeah, you'll have, you'll have, it's Red Bull Powertrains is another one. Mercedes, Ferrari, Honda, Audi. Well, sure, sure, but, uh, Red Bull Powertrains, not, are they not just going to revert, do you think, to Honda? No, no Red Bull have said in 2026 um, they will build their own bespoke engines. Yep, so they're coming in as a manufacturer. So you've got Red Bull Powertrain and Renault, so that's, uh, that's six. So my, my, my question is then, how could they possibly allow six engines 
there won't be six people, six engines worth of teams on the grid without letting more teams on the grid. If you if you open the floor up and say, yes, Andretti, Michael Andretti, you can come in. And yes, Hyundai, you can come in and you can use Honda engines or Red Bull powertrain engines. That makes a lot more sense. Or bring in another Japanese team and make, make Honda come back as a constructor, as a full works team, because Red Bull will have fobbed them off by then. But six engine manufacturers in a... Well, that that could work though, couldn't it? If there's 12 teams, six engine manufacturers, that means, you know, an engine supply for two per two teams. 12, that... 12 teams, absolutely, but not great. Not, not 10. Because what no. Merce- Williams maybe maybe Williams moved to Honda and fob off Mercedes. McLaren they're not going back to Honda anytime soon. But maybe they go to Audi or they go to I don't know. Actually, yeah, they they, they go to Audi or they stay with Mercedes. Like they're not, but they're not going back to Honda. So that's half the grid <gasps> already completely gone from any, any of Honda's prospects. And again, Red Bull and AlphaTauri won't be on their cards either because they'll have their own engines. I've just had a light bulb moment. What if? Zach Brown let Andreas Seidel go early because he wants an Audi engine in the future. Now, is this Zach Brown ding, being... Ding, ding, yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah it's, it's a shrewd I, business I, move I, for I, an engine I think, supplier. In... I think Zach Brown has seen the dollar signs in his ah. eyes there. Yeah, that, that, just hit, that just hit me like a silver bullet, right? I was like, bing, that's it. Stick a fiver on an Audi McLaren championship battle in 2026 with Audi engines. <laughs> nice, now, do it. Keeping in touch with your theory about more teams, a report came out that was on the Formula One website, not Formula One, the BBC, uh, the little-known mysterious Hong Kong billionaire Calvin Lowe is in active discussions that, with yeah. Formula One. Now, this man has an estimated personal fortune of £1.4 billion. So he sits at the same table, pretty much, of the strolls, give or take, a couple of billion. So he's nah, one of the... Pocket change. Yeah, pretty much. So yeah, apparently he is looking... To be probably the first, he could be the first team since Haas came in in 2016. 16. Yeah, to bring a brand new team, independent, not a works team. Now, could he come in in partnership? Hyundai wouldn't want to be powered by Honda. It's interesting. I mean, we've heard these things before reports about these billionaires going to bring in a team and then nothing ever happens. But it's no, interesting. I, d- I don't want him in. I- I'd rather have a, t- a team like Andretti, so, uh, a team like Audi, a, a-, a real team with, team with sub- substance in the background. We also haven't had any here. We haven't heard any more about Porsche. Now, Porsche was supposed to go part of Red Bull. It was pretty much sorted. It's died to death. They're still saying that they're going to come in and they're bringing the money in. I mean, this is the first era of a cost cap mm. Formula 1 is not a rich it's not like a Toyota billion pounds never get a win now they've got and sorry the whole point of the cost cap correct me if I'm wrong was to make the sport more attractive to more teams and yet they're not going to yes. let more teams in because well, Mercedes and Red Bull don't want to lose money well it's manufacturers so maybe it's engines I don't know you know maybe Toto needs to just understand that for the good of the sport we need to have more focus you go, uh, have, you go have that conversation with them then <laughs> 16 teams. That'd be great. I was looking, I was looking oh, back at, <laughs> I was looking through some of Mario Andretti's racing history and in one year there was like 45 official entrants to the Formula 1 season. That's why they had to have pre-qualifying the know, weekend yeah, before yeah. the races before, and half yeah. the grid never turned up. Yeah. No, we're not going to go back to that, but you know, two more teams, as long as they're not HRT and Caterham, I think we should be all right. <laughs> uh, and it, but I don't think we're going to be in that sort of situation anymore. No, there's so we won't much be. Oh, with the budget cap, well, there's there's things in place to stop that from happening. So HR, you won't get a HRT, you won't get a catering. You might get another Williams, you might get another Haas. You know, Haas yeah, it, but 
they'll be. But equally, you might get an, a bit more competitive. You might get an, after five years, you might get another Red Bull. Someone, co- someone, co- someone comes in like an Audi, who are already spending all the money in the world to get the big names like Andreas Side. They come in, they're gonna muddle around for a couple of years with an aged driver, Sebastian Vettel, and, <laughs> and and then all of a sudden they're gonna hire some absolute wonder kid, Sebastian Vettel's son, and they're gonna win the championship again and again and again and again. There's a couple of things now. Audi have already come out and done the thing that everybody in Formula One don't want new teams to do and say they're going to be competitive within three years. Like, why put a timeline on it? We, we yeah. saw this with BAR, we saw words. this with all these other ones, right? Do you remember, hmm. do you remember Renault are, were going to win the championship last year? Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that 100 race, 100 whatever race it is. Timeline, yeah. yeah. And also, what we need to remember as well, the engine manufacturers are going to be under a cost cap soon. I think that's next year that kicks in. Mm-hmm. I think there's a cost cap prior to 2026 because it basically stops Audi or the big manufacturers fucking a shitload of money at it and then your other ones come in like Honda did and they had to get you know they were years behind so you know it's a couple of things need like just thought about in terms of what's going to happen so it's Formula 1 in terms of new entries is a lot more enticing mm-hmm. like so why Gene Haas has it sold the car I think mm-hmm. was it Sean uh, Statman, virtual Statman, that said that, you know, spending the money he's spending on a Formula One car to put his name on the side of it is actually more beneficial longer mm-hmm. term than it is mm-hmm. to just, even though he's at the back of the grid and to put his like has tools or whatever it is he put on the side of the car for a while. Uh, you know, and now he's got his sponsorship and up to the cost cap. I mean, he's not going anywhere anytime soon. Mm-hmm. And eventually, if you do it right, sponsorship pays for it. Like, Red Bull have met the cost cap by the sponsorship with Oracle and whoever else so you know well let's let's wrap this up this is the last podcast of the year so thank you very much everybody for tuning in and being fans and listeners of the show we really appreciate you doing that I've had an absolutely fantastic season with the team I hope you've all enjoyed it have you enjoyed it Coops? yes yes to be to be completely transparent with you all I had tears in my eyes while I was listening to Mario Andretti I never thought as much as I've loved watching Formula 1 since 1992, I can remember watching races that I would actually eventually be sitting and having a face-to-face conversation over Zoom, of course, with Mario Andretti. I know. So I was so well, nervous coming into it, but yeah, what a legend. And it was great to, that we could get him on our last show of the year. Sean, is that your highlight of the year? I know you got to interview Sebastian Buemi. I, well, which... I had a great year. Yeah. That that was that was that was incredible because it was a well, it was it was me leading it. That was a lot of fun. I had I had M with me, which was great. But speaking to someone who had been a recent Formula One driver and is still currently a very successful racing driver was absolutely incredible. But I mean Formula One world champion, IndyCar 500, Indy 500 champion, Le Mans second place winner. That just that just <laughs> tops absolutely everything. That was that that's a that's a core memory. Like I'll I'll tell my my kids when when they grow up to become McLaren fans whether they like it or not. That my girlfriend <laughs> just walked in and said no because she's a Ferrari fan. My, my, my son's a Max Verstappen fan. I had no choice. Yeah, uh, he picked that. Well, and that I, was him. I, I, I will, I will forever tell my kids and grandkids that I did speak to the 1978 world champion. That is an absolute highlight of the season. Was... So, thank you very much for for setting that one up, Taylor. No problem at all. And 
it's a highlight for me as well to obviously speak to, to Mario, but I, I've really enjoyed this year. We've made some really great shows, had some really great guests, and we will, I promise you, continue striving for more and getting more guests on. I don't know how we can top Mario Andretti, but we, we will continue to try. We've got a good um, start I, for the new year. Absolutely. I want to go through, we had our Spotify unwrapped thing. No, we created 3,091 minutes of new content this year, which was more than 92% of all creators in the sport category. So that's amazing. We we obviously generated loads of loads of stuff for you guys to listen to. We were heard in 51 countries, the United States being our top country, wow. followed very closely by the United Kingdom, Netherlands, Canada and Ireland. So thank you very much for mm-hmm. all of those tuning in. Our podcast was in the top 20% most shared globally. Nice. Great. Wow. Thanks for sharing. If you if you did share, so absolutely brilliant. 31% uh, you're in the top 10% most followed podcast. So we've got 31% of our listeners are followers. So why aren't you following? If you're only 31% of you, <laughs> I want it to be 100%. If you're listening to this podcast now, that means you haven't hit the bell. You haven't hit the subscribe. So do it now because only 31% of you have done so. But thank you to everyone who does listen regularly. 93% of our listeners were discovered this year in 2022. So that is a huge, huge increase in our numbers. And we we just thank you from the bottom of our hearts i think that's pretty much all we need to kind of leave it as we are everything f1 find us on all our social platforms every single day of the week we'll do it all over christmas and new year before the season starts and then into the season two you can find us on facebook twitter instagram youtube and tiktok at the handle at join ef1 you can find us on our website where coops will be typing like a maniac getting all those breaking news articles out as soon as they do drop. So check that every single day, www.everythingf1.com. And of course, hit that subscribe button. We know you've not done it. Only 31% of you have. So hit that subscribe button so you get all of our latest podcasts in your earlobes as soon as they drop. Hopefully we're going to get some great guests. I can't promise we're going to top Mario Andretti, but we will certainly try. Thank you very much, Coops and Sean. Thank you, Thank you very much. Have a, great, have a great Christmas and New Year. Yes, all. And thank you very much to the rest of my team that had starred on shows throughout the year. I've been James Tiller. This is the Everything F1 podcast. We'll see you next year. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.